Welcome back, everyone, to 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. It's great to have you with us for another dive into history, this time Western history, as we explore the true story behind Lonesome Dove, the blockbuster novel-turned-TV miniseries that brought Westerns back to life, at least for a while, in television and movies. When a Western is done right, it's a work to treasure, and this one, for the most part, was a treasure. The true story of Lonesome Dove is a larger-than-life story of American legends Charles Goodnight and Oliver Loving, as they risked everything to drive 2,000 head of Texas Longhorn cattle 700 miles across some of the meanest land you could imagine, past Comanches, rattlesnakes, deserts, quicksand, and rustlers, and make a profit by reaching buyers who could and did pay handsome profits in gold. No one had done it before across desert. The forging of the good night loving trail is the quintessential no guts, no glory story of the American can-do spirit. Two men, both hardened western men, one just turning 30 years old, the other a seasoned 54 years old, believed they could do it, and they figured out how to take what most men consider to be impossible and make it work. And they succeeded. And that may not have been the first of the Texas drives, but it was the one that was talked about it was the first big one after the Civil War ended, and it started a wave of cattle drives that ended up moving 10 million longhorn steers from Texas to markets north, east, and west between 1866 and 1889. These were the cattle drives that forged the legend of the American cowboy, the Colt 44 peacemaker, and a whole new lexicon of western terms like roundup, chuckwagon, remuda, maverick, above board, bronco, broomtail, Caterwauling, Curly Wolf, Irons, meaning branding irons or six-shooters, Mustang, Longhorn, Half-Cocked, the Goodnight-Loving Trail, the Chisholm Trail, and hundreds if not thousands of other purely Western terms. In today's story, you'll get a chance to meet the real-life characters from whose actions and story McMurtry created his story, Lonesome Dove, and we'll put you in the saddle during one of the most dramatic times and places in American history. Southern Texas, just after the end of the American Civil War. Here you had a curious mix of hard-scrabble ranchers, ex-Confederate soldiers with a grudge against Yankees and humanity in general, ever-present dust, heat, and drought in large measure, U.S. cavalry, Comanches, Mexicans, free black men, orphans, Texans, soiled doves, lawmen, bad men, gamblers, opportunists, winners and losers, not to mention three million longhorns feeding on grama grass and hiding out in thickets. Any good western song or movie has a handful of these, and Lonesome Dove has them all. Many believe it was and is the greatest western TV miniseries ever made. We'll also talk about the making of the TV miniseries Lonesome Dove and the actors like Robert Duvall, Tommy Lee Jones, Diana Lane, and Robert Urich whom some of you old-timers might remember from the TV movies Spencer for Hire, based on the Robert B. Parker mystery novels, and others who played real-life legends and brought them to life, giving them a second chance to write again, an opportunity that few of us ever get, the chance to do it all over again. How many of us would choose the same path? That's always the question when memories and good times are being shared. We'll cover some facts and stories about the actors and the making of Lonesome Dove near the end of this story. This is your host, John Hagedorn, 
It's great to have you with us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. And here's a portion of the cowboy song, The Good Night Loving Trail, written by Utah Phillips and performed here by Joe Eli. Two old rings, right on the swing. You beat your triangle and you curse everything. If dirt was a kingdom, you'd be the king. On the good night trail, on the love trail. Our old man was lonesome tonight. And you French hormones like a lone boy and cat. It's a wonder the wind don't tear off your skin. Get in there and blow out the line. Lonesome Dove is an American epic western adventure TV miniseries based on the book of the same name by Larry McMurtry. The story and the movie are well known and loved by men and women who love the American West at its stories and legends. The novel didn't come first. It was actually based upon a screenplay by Peter Bogdanovich and Larry McMurtry, written years before CBS launched the miniseries in 1989. The screenplay was intended for John Wayne, Jimmy Stewart, and Henry Fonda, but John Ford, who had Wayne under contract, advised him against it. 25 years later, Robert Duvall, Tommy Lee Jones, and Danny Glover got the call and though all three had been involved in blockbuster movies for most of their careers, this one is really a collector's piece. An estimated 26 million homes tuned in to watch Lonesome Dove, and these were unusually high numbers for a Western at that time. To be exact, that time was February 5th through 8th, 1989. At the 1989 Emmys, Lonesome Dove had 18 nominations and 7 wins, including one for director Simon Winsor. Lonesome Dove also won two Golden Globes for Best Miniseries and Best Actor in a Miniseries, that actor being the quiet man from Virginia, Robert Duvall. The movie story, Captain Augustus Gus McRae, played by Robert Duvall, and Captain Woodrow McCall, played by Tommy Lee Jones, are two famous former Texas Rangers who run a livery in a small, dusty border town on the Rio Grande River. McCall has an adopted 17-year-old son named Newt, played by Ricky Schroeder, and working with them is Joshua Dietz, a black tracker and scout from their ranger days, played very believably by six-foot-three-inch Danny Glover. Their ranch is hardscrabble to say the least, run down, dusty, overrun by pigs and rattlesnakes, and not the kind of place that can easily support kids or women. Gus is twice a widower, a testament to the fact that West Texas in 1866 was hard on women, and women were hard to find with the exception there of one lonesome dove, Diana Lane, who has been living and working in the town's only saloon. She's the one bright spot in the whole dusty, run-down picture at the beginning of the series. She was left there by a roving gambler, and she was waiting for the first ticket out. Anyway, Gus and Woodrow get a surprise visit from their old ranger buddy Jake Spoon, played by Robert Urich, who was gone for ten years and is probably Newt's real father, but no one knows for sure and nobody's asking. Jake brings news that Montana needs cattle, and they're paying big dollars. 
"'and he gets Gus and Woodrow thinking about "'whether or not they can stay in the saddle long enough "'and keep their hair long enough to drive a herd north. "'And that's where we leave movie and fiction behind "'and introduce you to the real story. "'Why tell this story? "'Or any story about the Old West? "'Many history professors today teach that the American West "'was a peaceful paradise until the evil Europeans came, "'bringing death, destruction, and greed down upon their carefree world.' Nothing could be further from the truth. Yes, the white man lied about land treaties, and some of them massacred surrendered tribes. Can't get around it. But the Indians had been warring with each other since the beginning of man's time on earth. They had formed tribes and sub-tribes, which learned to hate each other. They learned the art of war and torture and killing at an early age, learning how to fight and raid each other's camps and kidnap and keep slaves. Lewis and Clark's savior, young Sacagawea, had been kidnapped from her tribe and forced to live with another tribe before she was sold off to a trapper named Charbonneau, all before the white man came west. The men who fought Indians and survived had a great respect for the Indians' ability to wage guerrilla war. The American West was untamed and dangerous, and it required a tough breed of men and women to enter it, to build homes and survive in it, and to prosper and raise families. These people who migrated west, and they were of all sizes, colors, and shapes, black, white, and brown, formed the nucleus of today's American culture. They gave us the can-do spirit that Americans are known for worldwide. One out of every five cowboys was black, and another one out of every five was Mexican. Some were mixed-breed Indian. They were all Americans who worked hard, lived hard, and often died hard. And good or bad, they were America's last frontiersmen, and they need to be remembered and honored. And now, on with our story. First, the two partners, Oliver Loving and Charles Goodnight. Kentucky-born Oliver Loving arrived in Texas in 1843 when he was 30 years old. Like many of the Texas cattle barons, Loving had roots back east, his father having left the letters GTT on the door of their home, those letters meaning... Gone to Texas, the land where you could get a lot of acres for a little money, and if you were willing to work hard, and you were tough and smart, you could raise a family and do pretty well and live on a 500-acre spread. Heck, Texas, during the 10 years before the Civil War, was a country of its own, a republic, and it represented freedom and a chance for a new life to a lot of people. That spirit still exists in much of Texas today, and that's what makes this story worth telling. Oliver Loving was born and raised in Kentucky. In 1833, he married his high school sweetheart, Susan Doggett Morgan, and started a family. Ten years and four children later, the Lovings posted gone to Texas on their door and left Kentucky in wagons carrying not only the Lovings family, but his brother, his brother-in-law, and their families as well. When they arrived in Texas in what is now Palo Pinto County, about 40 miles west of Fort Worth, his father chose the life of a farmer and rancher, and running a general store as well near Keechee Creek, and increasing his immediate family by another five kids in the process. He expanded his ranch in Palo Pinto County to 1,000-plus acres through hard work and smart business dealings. This is the area of Grapeford, Texas, near the Brazos River, in the north-central part of that state. At some point before the Civil War, Loving started to raise cattle and began accumulating a herd mostly of longhorn cattle, the original core of which had been abandoned by Mexican nationalists who had retreated after Santa Ana's defeat and left the cattle behind, 
where the grass was plentiful and the wild herds multiplied. In 1857, Loving sent his 19-year-old son, William, on a cattle drive to Illinois by way of the Shawnee Trail, also called the Texas Road Trail, or Sedalia Trail. Texas cattle had been driven up this trail since about 1840, but many of the drives had faced hard times for rustlers and Indians and armed groups who demanded tolls to pass. This Shawnee Trail, named after an Indian settlement on the Red River, was the first of the cattle trails leading out of Texas. It crossed the Red River near Preston and followed a path along the Grand River in Oklahoma to Fort Gibson, splitting from there into two different trails, one ending in Baxter Springs, Kansas, and the other in Sedalia, Independence, or Westport, Missouri. There were no trains in these years that could carry cattle to eastern markets, so demand was what it was, and profits were often meager. Things got worse along this route as cattle movements increased. A cattle disease called Texas fever sprang up. It didn't affect the longhorns that were being driven up from Texas, but it did affect the cattle that either mixed with them or later fed on the same grasses. By 1853, the ranchers and farmers along this trail were blocking any and all passage across their lands. In 1860, just before the outbreak of the Civil War, Loving combined his cattle with that of his neighbor John Durham and left Texas with 1,500 longhorns bound for the growing city of Denver. They moved their herd across the Red River and followed the Arkansas River to Pueblo, Colorado, where they decided to spend the winter. In the spring, they sold the cattle for gold, and Loving returned back through New Mexico toward Texas, picking up the lay of the land through New Mexico with the idea of moving another herd up through there next and selling to the military post who were badly in need of cattle to feed Indians that they were supporting on their reservations. But the biggest downside between that largest military installation, which was Fort Sumner, and Texas was 90 miles of unforgiving desert. Loving was passing through New Mexico when the Civil War broke out and he was detained by Union forces in Fort Sumner. In previous stories I've told of my father growing up on a ranch in New Mexico where today Philmont Boy Scout Ranch is located, and of how he used to play as a boy in the ruins of an old adobe home on that property, ruins that in later years were restored as the home of Kit Carson. While Oliver Loving was being detained at Fort Sumner, it was none other than frontier legend Kit Carson and his close friend Lucian Maxwell that interceded in Loving's behalf to set Loving free. Maxwell, who owned nearly two million acres of land in New Mexico and had scouted for Fremont, along with Carson, who had served as a scout for the Union Army and was already a legend in the West, pulled a lot of weight. The Army released Loving, who returned to Texas, where, as fate would have it, he was able to sell cattle to Confederate troops in Texas, although that money, over $150,000 worth over four years, was paid in Confederate script and was worthless after the war ended. When the Civil War broke out in 1861, Texas cattle were no longer allowed to be shipped north. By the time the war ended, somewhere between 3 and 5 million longhorns were thriving and multiplying on Texas grass, and drovers were seeking ways to move them to market. In 1865, at the end of the war, there were still no rails in the states and territories north of Texas, and Texas cattle fever was still a threat to many in those states so drovers began looking for new ways and trails that cattle could be moved in numbers. By the end of the war, Oliver Loving was in debt. He had a large family and a ranch with working men who depended on him for their livelihoods. He turned to young Charles Goodnight, whom he had hired once before to run cattle through Kansas to the Colorado miners in the Denver area. 
There was a strong bond between the two, who were both ranchers and experienced cowboys, and they agreed to become partners. Goodnight had been born in Illinois, and had to grow up fast when his father died of pneumonia in 1841. His family had moved to Texas when Goodnight was five years old, and by the time he was eleven, he was doing a man's work and learning the business of running a ranch. It would be Goodnight whose name would rise in stature through the post-war years to that of Texas legend. He would become the father of the cattle industry in the Texas Panhandle, and up until his death at age 92, he was the recognized business leader of all things cattle in that region. It was Goodnight who brought the wildly successful Hereford breed to Texas. Goodnight was a hard man in a hard country. When Unionists, who were a group of men who were rustling Texas cattle while under the protection of federal forces stationed in Texas, stole a few hundred head of Goodnights and were holding them on Beans Prairie west of Jacksboro, Texas, Goodnight took several men to round them back up, and they culled out the cattle that had been stolen from them, as well as their neighbors' cattle that had been stolen, and started them back toward home. The first night on the trail, a man came to them with a note from the Unionist, ordering them to return the cattle, or else. Goodnight, in his words, told the man to go back to his pals and send some sons of bitches they never wanted to see again to come and get them. No one showed up to take the cattle back. Back then, no one's homes or ranches were safe from attacks by Kiowas or Comanches. Goodnight had become a Texas Ranger, and part of his job was to protect settlers as well as represent the law in the state. Goodnight proved to be an excellent tracker. He was one of the trackers who assisted in finding Cynthia Ann Parker, who had been captured by Comanches when she was 10. By the time she was recaptured 25 years later, she had been made a wife of a Comanche warrior and had a family. She had blocked the killing of her parents and her kidnapping out of her mind and could remember nothing about it. After being recaptured, she was separated from her husband and her son, Quanah Parker, who became a renegade Comanche responsible for waging war on Texas settlers and their families, as well as the military, the Texas Rangers, and the Buffalo Hunters. When Cynthia Parker's infant daughter, Top Santa, died, Cynthia refused to eat and soon after died of a broken heart. The John Wayne movie The Seekers is loosely based on her story. When Quanah Parker finally led his Comanches to surrender in 1875, with the help of Charles Goodnight and others, he gave up waging war against the whites and turned to ranching. Men like cattleman Samuel Burke Burnett and Goodnight helped Parker to get established, and soon Quanah Parker had established himself as a successful rancher. His house was called the Star House. He also introduced religion to the Indians, not Protestant Christianity, but another called peyote religion. He was recognized for his contributions to peace and became friends with Theodore Roosevelt as well as other notables of his time. We'll return to our story right after this message from our sponsor. Hi, everyone. The holiday season is upon us, and I'll be glued to the telly for BritBox on many a night. I've already shared with you the fact that I keep up with Father Brown and Poirot at BritBox. I also check out their new stuff, like the new series Archie, which tells the story of Archie Leach, otherwise known to millions of filmgoers as Cary Grant. This story comes from his daughter Jennifer Grant and ex-wife Diane Cannon. It's a series. The performance of Jason Isaacs, who plays Cary Grant, is top-notch. I highly recommend it. You can only find it on my favorite TV, BritBox. Sign up to BritBox today to stream Archie and other fan favorites today from any device. 
I have a special limited time offer for my U.S. and Canadian listeners. Get 50% off your first month when you sign up for a monthly plan, but only if you go to BritBox.com and use my promo code 1001stories at checkout. Don't wait. Get 50% off your first month. Just use promo code 1001stories at BritBox.com. Try it. You'll like it. Everybody in your crew identifies as either Big Mac Burger, McNuggets, or McCrispy Sandwich. But you're the filet fish Sandwich all day. That crispy fish, that savory tartar sauce, that melty cheese, that pillowy bun. Yeah, you get it. Every time. And if you love the filet of fish right now you can catch two of the classics you love for just $6. Limited time only. Price and participation may vary. Cannot be combined with any other offer. Single item at regular price. Ba-da-ba-ba-ba. And now, back to our show. On June 6, 1866, Loving, Goodnight, and 16 armed men, all cowboys, with 2,000 longhorns, many with horns spreading eight feet from tip to tip, began a drive from a point 25 miles west of Belknap, Texas. Their destination? Fort Sumner, New Mexico. I've posted a map and some pictures at facebook.com forward slash 1001 heroes to give you an idea of the territory they were traveling through. The map showing the route that Goodnight and Loving took from their starting point west of Belknap, east to Pecos, and then north to Fort Sumner and beyond. It was 700 miles to Fort Sumner, 90 of those through desert, and another, and another 500 miles to points further north, where Loving would end up taking the remainder of the herd. We'll get to that story in a few minutes. They followed the trace of the Southern Overland Mail, better known today as the Butterfield Stage Route, west toward Pecos. This territory had been explored, but ranches and settlers were sparse, and no cattle had been driven over it previously. To the north was the Llano Estacado, also called the Staked Plains, a wide desert which held no water. Goodnight had designed a chuck wagon, which was a customized covered wagon with a drop-down tailgate into which was built compartments for cooking supplies and utensils. Water barrels were strategically placed, but as it ended up, never enough for men and animals trying to make it across a barren and dry alkali desert. They headed east for a long ways before turning north towards New Mexico and Fort Sumner. Goodnight and Loving's destination in 1866, that first drive, was the Bosque Redondo Reservation near Fort Sumner, New Mexico, which held surrendered Navajos and Mescalero mostly, although renegades came and left dependent upon their moods. Goodnight figured he had found a new market for beef, and the federal government paid well. Among the 16 cowboys they had hired for the trip, there was one armed Bill Wilson, who would survive a harrowing escape from Indians in 1867, which left Loving behind, wounded while Wilson escaped to get help, a story we'll be telling in just a few minutes. And there was cross-eyed Nath Brauner, a heavy-set German with a flowing mustache who made a habit of killing rattlesnakes, every one he could find. By the time they reached Fort Sumner, he had collected 72 rattles and sent them all back home to Kentucky. There was a black cowboy named Jim Fowler who drew the grim chore of killing newborn calves that would be unable to finish the drive. And former slave Bo Zickert, whose epitaph was written by Goodnight when the loyal cowhand died in 1929. It read, Served with me four years on the Goodnight Loving Trail, never shirked a duty or disobeyed an order, rode with me in many stampedes, participated in three engagements with Comanches. Splendid behavior. 
the character Josh Dietz in Lonesome Dove was modeled after Ickard. That character was played by Danny Glover. Bose was born into slavery in Mississippi in 1843 and emerged after the Civil War as a free man, and he died in 1928. When Bose was a young boy, his slaveholder took him to Texas while still in bondage to work on a cattle ranch, and it was in Texas that Bose learned to ride, rope, and fight. He had hired out his service to Oliver Loving, who, as we know, died as a result of gangrene from bullet wounds sustained during a fight with the Comanches. Bose then hired out his service to Charles Goodnight. He was respected by the men who worked with him and those who hired his services. Goodnight also said about Bose, Bose surpassed any man I had in endurance and stamina. There was a dignity, a cleanliness and reliability about him that was wonderful. His behavior was very good in a fight, and he was probably the most devoted man to me that I ever knew. I have trusted him farther than any man. He was my banker, my detective, and everything else in Colorado, New Mexico, and other wild country. The nearest and only bank was in Denver, and when we carried money, I gave it to Bose, for a thief would never think of robbing him. Bose Ickert is buried in the Greenwood Cemetery in Weatherford, Texas, near Loving's Grave. On the trail, on either point, rode two experienced cowboys, the best hands in the outfit, usually, who directed the herd along the course recommended by the owners. Often Goodnight would ride 15 miles ahead, scouting the best approaches and places for range, water, and, and bedding grounds. Always he was watchful for signs of Indians. In that area, renegade Kiowas and Comanches. The herd passed Camp Cooper and the haunted chimneys of Fort Phantom Hill. Then they turned south for a while and passed by where present-day Abilene, Texas is located, and then through Buffalo Gap. They passed Fort Chadbourne, crossed the Concho River, and drove the cattle past the location just north of where San Angelo later sprang up. Then they plodded across the middle concho to the area called the Staked Plains. From there, they had to pass through a gap in the mountains called Castle Gap, and then it was Horsehead Crossing, and then the southern New Mexico desert. Horsehead Crossing had gotten its name from the skulls of Apache horses which had been ridden too hard or too long after raids, and the horses had dropped dead after reaching and drinking the briny river water of the Pecos. Apaches were not known to care for their horses. The desert was their worst enemy. They filled everything that could hold water after leaving the river, but the desert was 80 miles of hell on men, cattle, and horses. Newborn calves had to be shot. There was no other choice. They had to stop by day and travel by night when it was cooler to save water. Men were choking from alkali dust. The cattle were showing ribs with no grass to eat, and some decided to turn and fight, goring the cowboys' mustangs with their horns. By the third day they reached Castle Canyon, where the cattle got their first whiff of water, and it set them stampeding down the valley. I said the third day, but it was actually the middle of the night. Goodnight rode ahead and tried to turn the wildly charging cattle, fearing that when they reached the river at full tilt, it would cause a backup, drowning the cattle that had reached it, and killing others as they crowded one into another. He also tried to turn the cattle away from the alkali ponds that stood between them and the river, knowing the alkali ponds would kill the cattle, and it did. When the cattle which drank from these ponds got their fill and finally turned away, they dropped to their knees in the moonlight and died while still in sight of the ponds. But with the help of his number one man, one-armed Bill Wilson, Goodnight still managed to save a good deal of the cattle, working tirelessly, spreading them out along the river and adjacent grazing grounds. All this 
before the first rays of the sun appeared over the horizon. By this point, Goodnight had not slept for three days and three nights, and neither had most of his men. Loving was riding drag, and the herds were separated, with Loving's group numbering about five hundred head. When they got wind of the Pecos, they also stampeded, right over a ten-foot-high embankment overlooking the river. It was a cliff, and it took men and horses with them, with many of them drowning in the process. By the time it was over, the Pecos River had claimed hundreds of longhorns and a handful of good cowboys, as well as a portion of the Remuda. Goodnight would later say that he hated the Pecos worse than any attacking Indians or rustlers. And it was a strange location, that although the Pecos had fish, it held no wolves and no wildlife. It was barren, desolate, and deadly, and portions of the river bottom and banks had quicksand from which cattle couldn't be pulled out no matter how hard they tried with ropes. The herd then followed the overland route that followed the Pecos River all the way north to Fort Sumner, best known today as the end of the trail for Billy the Kid, and that was one of our episodes here at 1001 Heroes. The town has two Billy the Kid museums and the graves of Billy and a couple of his pals, not to mention a marker for Joe Grant, who was shot and killed by the kid in a local saloon in 1880. Loving and Goodnight had come to Fort Sumner for the fort and reservation, now excellently preserved at Fort Sumner Historic Site and the Bosque Redondo Memorial. But government contractors and subcontractors wouldn't buy the stock cattle that Goodnight and Loving had brought with the Longhorns. They did pay eight cents a pound for the Longhorns, netting $12,000, a fortune in those days, and left the cattlemen with seven to eight hundred cattle. Now they had to make a decision as to how and where they could sell the cattle. They decided that Goodnight would return to Texas and Loving would drive the cattle north for Colorado, past Las Vegas, New Mexico, and Raton, and across the border to Denver, where Loving ended up selling the cattle to John W. Iloff. Loving later returned to Texas a wealthy man and paid all his debts. The first cattle drive had been successful beyond their wildest dreams, dangerous and costly, but successful. The next year, 1867, Goodnight and Loving organized another drive, but this one was plagued with constant rains and Indian attacks. They struck the Pecos in the latter part of June, the plan being to reach the market before others did. Their success the previous year had spawned a lot of new competition. About 100 miles upriver, Loving traveled ahead of the herd on horseback in order to bid on the contracts, which were to be let out in July. Because Loving was an impatient man, even reckless, Goodnight insisted he be accompanied by one of his best men, one-armed Bill Wilson, previously mentioned, who, despite only being able to ride and shoot with one arm, was a top hand and a crack shot. Goodnight also made Loving promise to ride only by night to avoid Indians. After only two nights, however, Loving, who detested night riding, talked Wilson into changing tactics so they could proceed by daylight. Crossing the plain now in broad daylight, the two riders, visible for miles, were spotted by a Comanche raiding party that came thundering after them. The cowmen made a four-mile run for the Pecos, spurring their horses over an incline and down to a sand dune at the foot of a bluff, where it formed a shallow cave open to view only from across the river. As the Comanches surrounded them, Loving and Wilson readied themselves for a fight to the death. Wilson was armed with a revolving six-shot rifle and saddle holsters, as well as his own cap-and-ball six-shooter, while Loving had pistols and a Henry rifle. The Comanches, Wilson estimated that they numbered several hundred, swarmed down the bluffs around them, but the first one who fired at the cowboys from across the river got shot by Loving, who was an expert marksman. 
This cooled the Comanche's heels somewhat, and the afternoon passed with little action. The Comanche's had time and patience. Late in the evening, the drovers heard someone call from the bluff in Spanish. Realizing it could be a trap, but with the situation bordering on the hopeless, Wilson took a chance and stepped up on the dune to parley with Loving behind him, Henry rifle in hand, his holsters across his arm. As Wilson stepped into view, Indians hidden in a clump of carrizo or cane opened fire, with one of their bullets smashing through Loving's wrist and plowing into his side. Wilson hastily fell back into the ditch, giving his attention to Loving. After staunching the bleeding, they readied themselves for a siege. Goodnight would later tell author J. J. Evitz Haley, The Comanches were also armed with bows, and shot their arrows high into the air to make them fall at a sharp angle into the ditch, while Wilson and Loving hugged close to the low but perpendicular wall of the washout, and the arrows either stuck in the sand above them or passed over their backs into the other bank. Next, Goodnight recalled, the Comanches tried bombarding their quarry with gravel, but that didn't work either. The evening wore into dusk, but things were going from bad to worse fast. Weak from loss of blood, Loving was racked with pain and fever. Wilson managed to get to the river and brought back a bootful of water for the suffering man, but Loving's condition worsened, and he implored Wilson to escape, if possible, and carry the story of his fate downriver to Goodnight and to his family. "'I'll stand the Comanches off as best I can,' he told Wilson, "'but rather than be taken and tortured to death, "'I will shoot myself and fall into the river. "'If the Indians leave me and I find strength enough to travel, "'I'll head downstream a couple of miles and hide.' "'Wilson agreed to make the attempt. "'They calculated carefully. "'If he could hold out for a day and a half, "'he would have a good chance of meeting the advancing good night. "'They calculated carefully. "'If he could hold out for a day and a half, he'd have a good chance of meeting the advancing Goodnight. He spread their five six-shooters and Goodnight's rifle by loving sound arm, but took the Henry and its metallic cartridges, which would be unaffected by water, for to escape by the river was his only chance. Goodnight said, When the moon went down, he told Loving goodbye, moved to the mouth of the gully, and divesting himself of his clothing, hid his clothes in one place and his knife, which dropped from his pocket, in another, all beneath the water. He pulled off everything but his hat, drawers, and undershirt, which he hoped would protect him from the sun, and slipped into the treacherous stream. In that section of the Pecos, the river was quite sandy and difficult to swim in, Wilson would later recall, so I had to pull off all of my clothes except my hat, shirt, and breeches. But a one-armed man trying to carry a Henry and swim is nearly impossible. He finally had to ditch the rifle, his one means of protecting himself from the Comanches. He leaned it up against the bank of the river, under the water, where the Comanches couldn't find it, Wilson said. Then I went down the river about a hundred yards. Then, he said, I went down the river about a hundred yards and saw an Indian sitting on his horse out in the river with the water almost over the horse's back. He was sitting there, splashing the water with his foot, just plain. I got under some smart weeds and drifted by till I got far enough below the Indian where I could get out. Then I made a three days march, actually three nights, sleeping hidden by day, barefooted. Everything in that country had stickers in it. On my way, I picked up the small end of a teepee pole, which I used for a walking stick. On the last night of his slow and painful journey, he was followed by wolves all night. I would give out, just like a horse, and lay down in the road and drop off to sleep, and when I would awaken, the wolves would be all around me, snapping and snarling. I would take up that stick, knock the wolves away, get started again, and the wolves would follow behind. 
I kept that up until daylight, when the wolves quit me, Wilson recalled. About twelve o'clock on that last day, I crossed a little mountain and knew the boys ought to be right in there somewhere with the cattle. I found a little place, a sort of cave, that afforded protection from the sun, and I couldn't go any further. After a short time, the boys came along with the cattle and found me. During their earlier drive to Denver, Loving and Goodnight had discovered a valley about two miles long and a mile wide, close to the New Mexico line, near the upper end of which were some gravel hills, in one of them a cave, which extended back ten or fifteen feet, which they marked as a splendid hiding place for Comanches planning a surprise attack. I was watching carefully four Indians, Goodnight remembered, suspecting that they might be behind the hill, when I saw a man come out of the cave and go back into it. Goodnight gave orders for the herd to be held and for the men to be ready for a fight. When one-armed Bill Wilson came out of the cave, a quarter of a mile away, and gave the old frontier signal, Come here. Goodnight said he knew positively that it was Wilson. And, he said, I immediately put the horse down to full speed and went to him. For a few moments he seemed unable to talk, probably overwhelmed with emotion, knowing his life was saved at last. With what was left of his underwear saturated with red sediment from the river, Wilson was the most terrible object I ever saw, Goodnight said. His eyes were wild and bloodshot, his feet were swollen beyond all reason, and every step he took left blood in the track. I inquired about Loving, but he could scarcely make a reply at that time, and what he did mutter was entirely unintelligible. I put him on my horse and got him to the herd as soon as possible. I tore up a blanket, wet it, wrapped his feet to remove the fever, and then made him a light gruel of meal, which I gave him at intervals for about an hour. By then, he was back to himself. I asked him for particulars, and he told me in detail of the trip and of the attack by the Indians. When Wilson finished his story, I decided to start immediately. We rode the rest of the evening and all that night. It not only rained, but it rained torrents, and was so dark at times we were forced to halt. When I reached the place where Wilson told me he had left the trail, I recognized it easily from his description, although the plains were unmarked, or would have appeared so to the untrained eye. Besides his description, the place was distinguished by the fact that a bunch of Comanches had again come out of the mountains and passed over the same trail they had taken when chasing the two men. Their tracks seemed as fresh as ours, and we supposed they were under the bluffs still trying to get to Mr. Loving. But, when we got to the top of the bluff, there was not an Indian in sight. In a moment, I found where Mr. Loving had been in the ditch, which was now half filled with stones, and its banks perforated with probably a hundred arrow shafts, though the Indians had gathered the arrow heads before leaving. I knew they had not got him, as there was ample evidence that they had been hunting for him everywhere. We searched down by the river, but no tracks could be found. I believed he had carried out his threat, that he had shot himself and floated down the river, the torrent obliterating all traces. After dark, the party sadly made its way back to the herd, and again we took up the trail. But Loving was not dead. After Wilson left, the Comanches had continued to shower Loving's position with rocks, and they tunneled through the dune to within a few feet of where he lay, but they lacked the courage to get any closer. Racked with hunger and fever from his wounds, he somehow managed to keep his attackers at bay, but few men could endure a shot-shattered wrist and three foodless days and sleepless nights without collapse. In spite of his age, however, and by the way, he was fifty-five, as we've said before, Loving was blessed with an iron constitution. When no help showed up, he followed Wilson's lead. 
On the third night, he crawled into the water and started upstream instead of downstream, hoping to reach the trail crossing, which would be present-day Carlsbad, New Mexico, about six miles above, where some passerbys might see him and help him. At last he gained the crossing and lay down in the shade, about four feet above the water, Goodnight told Haley. He attempted to shoot some birds that came into the trees so he could eat them. He was starving, but the river had soaked his powder and caps, and the guns were useless. He tried to eat his buckskin gloves, but he couldn't kindle a fire to parch them to a crisp, and again settled back to wait. For two days and nights he stayed there, too weak to move, but satisfying his thirst by tying his handkerchief to a stick and dipping it in the river below. On the third day a superb endurance broke, and he sank into a stupor. And right then a lucky twist of fate arrived in the form of three Mexicans and a German boy, driving a wagon drawn by three yoke of oxen, who were passing through on their way to Texas. They had stopped at the crossing to prepare their dinner. The boy found Loving apparently asleep. They took him to the wagon, where the Mexicans prepared some atole, similar to our cornmeal mush, after which he offered them 250 to take him to Fort Sumner, which was about 150 miles away at that point. Had these men been dishonest, they could easily have killed Loving, taken his money belt, and buried him there, and no one would have been the wiser. These were hard times, and the trails were full of desperate men, but these men were honest. Meanwhile, Goodnight's herd kept moving north. About two weeks after this, Wilson said, we met a party coming from Fort Sumner, and they told us Loving was at Fort Sumner. The bullet which had penetrated his side did not prove fatal, and the next night after I had left him, he got into the river and drifted by the Indians as I had done, crawled out and lay in the weeds all the next day. Some thirty miles from Fort Sumner, a courier brought Goodnight the news that Loving was alive, but that gangrene had set in and his arm needed to be amputated. Loving did not want the operation performed unless I was there, Goodnight said, as he feared he might not survive it. The old doctor was in Santa Fe, and the young doctor put me off from day to day with various excuses. Fortunately, I found him at the hospital alone and told him briefly and in no uncertain words that I presumed he was putting me off because we were rebels and that he must now operate or have to fight me. The doctor performed the amputation, and Loving seemed to be doing well. Just to be on the safe side, Goodnight paid a man, reportedly Winfield Scott Moore, $500 to ride to Las Vegas and bring back Dr. John H. Shout. They arrived two days later, only to find out that Loving had suffered a relapse. In spite of neglect, starvation, and punishment, he lived for 22 days, perfectly rational to the last, when his mind turned back to Texas, Goodnight recalled. And at last he said, I regret to have to be laid away in a foreign country. I assured him that he need have no fears, that I would see that his remains were laid in the cemetery at home in Weatherford, Texas. He felt that this would be impossible, but I told him no, I would do it. Loving died on September 25, 1867, and his body was temporarily buried in a simple wooden casket at Fort Sumner. Four months later, Goodnight returned. Transporting the remains of his friend back to Texas would be a daunting task, but the cattleman was determined to keep his promise. Gathering scattered oil cans from about the fort, his cowboys beat them out, soldered them together, and made an immense tin casket. Inside this, they placed the rough wooden one, plus several inches of powdered charcoal packed around it, sealed the tin lid, and created the hole in lumber. 
they lifted a wagon bed from its bolsters and carefully loaded the sarcophagus onto it so that what had once been a wagon bed was now a rolling coffin made of metal and encased in wood. On February 8, 1868, with six big mules strung out in harness, the rough-hewn cowmen from Texas rode ahead and behind the strangest and most affecting funeral cavalcade in the history of the cow country, bringing Oliver Loving home. Goodnight was fulfilling his promise to his best friend and business associate. His men were equally as loyal, Loving having earned their respect as a top hand and leader from the first days on the trail. Down the relentless Pecos and across the implacable plains, the 388-mile journey was singularly peaceful, Goodnight told his biographer Haley. Through miles of grazing buffaloes, they approached the cross timbers, reached the settlements, and at last delivered the body to the Masonic Lodge at Weatherford, Texas, where it was buried in Greenwood Cemetery with fraternal honors. Some things you might not have known about Lonesome Dove. The author of the screenplay and book Lonesome Dove, Larry McMurtry, said he didn't model the characters after Goodnight and Loving. It's true, but in a way that's misleading, because he obviously borrowed the story of Goodnight and Loving from the events of their lives. McMurtry definitely developed the personalities of the leading characters according to his own creative instincts, and much of the story was fictionalized, just a product of McMurtry's imagination, which won him a Pulitzer Prize. Those products of imagination being naming their town Lonesome Dove, introducing characters like ex-ranger-turned-opportunist Jake Spoon, whose get-rich-quick ways landed him in a noose, to adding fictional ex-wives and sons, to starting off the two retired rangers as co-partners in a livery stable living in a run-down shack in a forgotten dump of a town. All fiction. In truth, Goodnight, who you can think of as Captain Woodrow McCall, played by Tommy Lee Jones in the movie, was an ex-Texas ranger. Goodnight was born in Macopin County, Illinois, in March of 1836, and was 30 years old at the time they made their first cattle drive, in 1866. His father died in Illinois of pneumonia in 1841, and his mother remarried a man named Doherty, who moved then to Milam County, Texas, in 1846. By 1856, Goodnight, at the age of 15, was a full-fledged cowboy and served with the local militia fighting against Comanche raiders. In 1857, at the age of 16, and doing the work of a man, Goodnight joined the Texas Rangers. In 1861, he, with other Texans, joined the Confederate Army serving with a frontier regiment to fight Indians. When the war ended, he returned to Palo Pinto County, Texas, where he joined with other ranchers to promote the cattle business. After Loving's death, and having made three more cattle drives to northern markets, all of which were successful, Goodnight married and started a ranch of his own in Texas, which later grew to over one million acres. He was known throughout the state for his work to breed new strains of cattle and for his generosity, earning a reputation as a great man and a Texas legend. He lived well into his 90s and always remembered the cattle drives as the best times of his life. Oliver Loving, whose character was loosely portrayed by Robert Duvall in his role as Captain Augustus Gus McRae, was 54 when he died. He was born in Kentucky in 1812 and moved to Texas in 1843, where he and his wife bought 500 acres and began cattle ranching. He, like Goodnight, was an experienced rancher and cowboy. His son, William, was really the one who led the first successful cattle drive from Texas, and it was in 1857, 
driving a large herd up the Shawnee Trail to Illinois and getting paid $36 per head for over a thousand head of cattle. After the first drive to Fort Sumner, as you remember, Goodnight returned to Texas with their gold and banked it, then started gathering more longhorns for a second drive. Loving drove the 500 or so remaining mixed cattle up to Denver and sold it, later returning to the ranch of John Chisholm, located in Bosque Grand, about 40 miles south of Sumner, New Mexico. It was here that Goodnight and Loving met again, this time with John Chisholm, and forged a three-way partnership. Another Chisholm, Jesse Chisholm, spelled differently, was to forge the Chisholm Trail north from Texas to the infamous cow towns of Dodge City, Abilene, Kansas City, and Newton. They're a story all their own. We'll dedicate an episode to the Chisholm Trail and the men and towns who became legends during the years that the Chisholm Trail flourished. Men like Bill Hickok, Bad Masterson, Hardin, and others. Now a few things you didn't know about Lonesome Dove. First, Tommy Lee Jones is a real cowboy. He owns his own 3,000-acre ranch in Texas, and he refused stunt doubles during the filming of Lonesome Dove. He was originally cast to play Augustus McRae, and Duval was cast as Woodrow Call. But after reading the book, Duval wanted the part of Gus McRae, and because he was the better-known actor, he got it. Duval objected to a number of last-minute changes in casting, most loudly about who's going to play the part of the half-breed Comanche Blue Duck. Now, Blue Duck was fictional, but like so many others of McMurtry's characters, he was inspired by a real-life half-breed named Quanta Parker, whose story we covered earlier in this episode. Duvall said in an interview that in television, too many people are in charge of production, and many in this case had no sense of the West or what a Comanche should look or act like. Duvall had recommended a full-blooded Indian for the role. One of the TV executives wanted ballet dancer Rudolf Nureyev to play Blue Duck. But Frederick Forrest ended up with a role, and did okay, as Duval later said, but was totally unprepared for the role. Also, Lonesome Dove did clean up on Emmys, but it missed out on the best TV miniseries, To War and Remembrance. There were a lot of good miniseries in the 80s, and lots of competition. The Golden Globes, however, didn't miss out. They gave the top award to Lonesome Dove, and gave Duval best actor as well. Robert Urich, who played Jake Spoon, had already starred in 15 television dramas, a Hollywood record at that time. He was best known for his role as Dan Tanna in Vegas. He died at the young age of 55 from a rare form of cancer, and he'll long be remembered as well as a hard-nosed wise guy Boston detective in the TV movies Spencer for Hire. One movie mistake in Lonesome Dove, Captain Call's horse is called Hell Bitch, and it's often referred to as a female throughout the show. But his horse is a gelding, meaning a castrated male horse. A famous quote from Lonesome Dove. Wood wrote a Gus. You ever get tired of loafing, I reckon you can get a job waiting on tables. Gus. Oh, I had a job waiting tables once. It was on a riverboat. I was no older than Newt there. But I had to give it up. Newt? How come? Gus. Well, I was too young and pretty, and the horse just wouldn't leave me alone. To wrap it up, they were all Americans. The Comanche Quanta Parker, the black cowboys like Moe Zickard, Charles Goodnight and Oliver Loving, and the men who rode with them. They were hard men who settled an unforgiving wilderness and carved lives out of it. They made a path for generations of Americans to follow and helped to give our country its spirit and its can-do culture of independence. Their lives, 
were important, and they need to be remembered. And the coffee's all gone The boys are up We're raising the dawn You're still sitting Lost in a song On the good night trip On the loving trip Our old lonesome tonight It's a wonder the wind don't tear off your skin. Get in there and blow out the light. With your snake oil and your herbs and your linens too, you can do anything that a doctor can do. Except find a cure for your own goddamn stew On the good night trail, on the loving trail Our old ones are lonesome tonight Your French harmony like a long boring cat It's a wonder the wind don't tear off your skin In there, go at the land well, I imagine someday I'll be just the same Wearing an apron instead of a name Thanks, everyone, for joining us at 1001 Heroes, Legends, Histories, and Mysteries. We always appreciate good reviews, so if you enjoyed our show, please do send us a review at Apple or wherever you listen to podcasts. We appreciate your sharing our show with others. And we also encourage you to listen to our other podcasts, like 1001 Classic Short Stories and Tales, 1001 Stories for the Road, 1001 Radio Days, 1001 Ghost Stories and Tales of the Macabre, 1001 Greatest Love Stories, and 1001 History's Best Storytellers, where we keep all our interview shows after they play at 1001 Heroes. All great shows, all enjoyable, and we hope you check them out. Thanks for joining us, everyone. We'll be back next Sunday night at 8 p.m. Eastern Time with a brand new episode. Until then, everyone, stay safe, and we'll be back soon.
worked hard for what you have, your money, your assets, your 401k and home. Isn't it all worth protecting? Nearly one in four consumers have been a victim of identity theft. LifeLock Ultimate Plus helps protect your finances with up to $3 million in reimbursement. LifeLock alerts you to identity threats you might miss. And if your identity is stolen, your dedicated U.S.-based restoration specialist will work to fix it. Let LifeLock help protect what you've worked so hard for. Save 25% off your first year on LifeLock Ultimate Plus at LifeLock.com aware. Terms apply.